Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Africa podcast. I'm your host, Andy. Last episode, we learned about the migration of the Akan peoples into the southern forests of Ghana, and spoke briefly about the early states set up by these new arrivals in the forest region. From these multiple early states, however, one would emerge as the dominant power in the 15th century Ghanaian forest. Season 3, Episode 2, The Empire of Denkira. Sometime around the middle of the 15th century, a small settlement named Jukwa was established in south-central Ghana. This city, located on an important trading road from the gold fields in the south to the trade routes of Bonomanso in the north, was initially only a small settlement, barely large enough to even be called a proper urban center. Despite its strategic location, the gold trade of southern Ghana was simply not lucrative enough at this time to single-handedly fuel the creation of a large mercantile city. So Jukwa remained small in both population and economic significance. But soon, the entire system of trade in West Africa would undergo an immense shakeup, almost entirely due to the arrival of a single boatload of men. In 1471, a group of Portuguese sailors under the sponsorship of Enrique Duque of Viseu, better known by his anglicized name Henry the Navigator, arrived on the southern coasts of Ghana. These Portuguese merchants, upon arriving in Ghana, began trading with the local Fonti people that they encountered on the southern coasts. When the merchants bought gold from the Fonti, they were shocked at how low the price was. For the last several centuries, much of the gold in Western Europe was imported from West Africa along the traditional North-South Trans-Saharan trade route, where it had passed through several middlemen in West and North Africa, only to be eventually sold to the Europeans at a huge markup. However, to the Europeans, buying gold from the Fonti was like buying from a wholesaler. There was no markup from the numerous taxes or transportation fees that came with the Trans-Saharan trade route. And not only did they find gold at a wholesale price, they also found ivory, tropical woods, pepper, and other spices, all at an incomprehensibly cheaper price than what they could find at a market in North Africa. When the King of Portugal heard about the potential profits of trading directly with the people of the forest region of Ghana, he ordered the construction of an impressive stone fort, Elmina Castle, on the coast of Ghana in 1482. Fonti merchants flocked to the castle to sell their wares to these peculiar foreigners who were buying their products in unprecedentedly high volume, while Portuguese merchants sailed in droves to purchase these unusually cheap African products. Soon, there was now a stable, well-trafficked trade route directly between Portugal and the coast of Ghana, and the world would never be the same. The economy of North Africa and the Sahel slumped as the Trans-Saharan trade route declined. The Portuguese economy boomed. Other European powers looked at the small coastal kingdom with envy. Soon, Portuguese merchants would sail beyond only Ghana, eventually reaching into southern Africa, Arabia, East Africa, India, China, Malaysia. The traditional overland trade route between Europe and Asia also began to decline. The Mediterranean and Indian Ocean trade routes were disrupted, and the economy of Ghana would never be the same either. Remember, when trade in Ghana traveled along a north-south axis, this rewarded the cities in the north, like Bonomanso, who could act as strategic mercantile hubs and produce finished goods to trade with those further south in exchange for gold, which they could then sell to the north for a profit. However, with the opening of a direct trade route between the Ghanaian coast and the outsiders, in this case Europeans, the people of the Ghanaian coast could turn not only to Bonomanso, but to the Portuguese as a source of finished goods. Whether it was glass, iron products, or tanned leather, the Portuguese could offer them at a comparable, or sometimes even cheaper rates than the merchants of Bonoman. Of course, the Portuguese would later add firearms to the list of valuable items they would trade in Ghana as well as yams, or sweet potatoes, when they came into contact with them in the Americas. Yams, which grew quite well in Ghana's climate and soil, soon became a huge hit, 
and even replaced millet as the staple food in the Ghanaian diet. Anyways, while Bono Manso continued to be an important producer of finished goods, the city's monopoly on the products in the south was broken. The town of Jukwa, however, benefited immensely. It was no longer only a third-rate mercantile hub on the fringes of the gold-carrying trade routes, but was now right in the center of the economic action. You see, Jukwa is only a few dozen miles north of Almina Castle itself. So, if Akan merchants wanted to bring their local products to the castle, or try to resell their European imports in the north, Jukwa was the perfect location for a middleman. With this new wealth from taxing trade, Jukwa became the most important city in southern Ghana. The people of Jukwa belonged to an ethnic group called the Denkira, a subgroup of Akan that lived dispersed throughout south-central Ghana. And soon, largely from the profits they received from acting as a middleman in the luxurious southern Ghana trade, the elites of Jukwa became the wealthiest people in southern Ghana. And, to further increase their zone of influence, protecting their trade routes and profits, the elites of Jukwa began to exert further influence on their neighboring cities and villages. The king of Jukwa, or Jukwa Hene, sought an even more ambitious way to expand. Oh, and by the way, that suffix, Hene, means king. Like the Jukwa Hene means king of Jukwa. Believe me, we'll be seeing the suffix Hene a lot more this season, so I might as well explain it here. Anyways, to further their influence, the Jukwahenes throughout the 15th and 16th centuries began militarily and diplomatically expanding into other Denkira city-states. By the end of the 16th century, in fact, the kings of Jukwa had united the people who spoke the Denkira dialect of Akan. Now, the kings of Jukwa no longer called themselves the Jukwahene, but were now entitled the Denkirahene, king of all Denkira. However, around the same time that the first Denkirahenes were uniting their territories, European trade in West Africa had taken a dark new turn. Shortly after the establishment of Elmina Castle, a Portuguese explorer landed on the coast of Brazil and claimed the region for the Portuguese crown. At first, Brazil remained a colonial backwater, a pitifully unimportant piece of land compared to the incredibly profitable trade forts in Africa and Asia. But when the Portuguese heard of the success that the Spanish had encountered growing sugarcane in their recently established colonies in Cuba, the Portuguese decided that they'd try to establish similar plantations in Brazil. These plantations proved incredibly profitable. Sugar was always in high demand and carried a substantial price tag. But the Portuguese soon ran into a problem with labor. Portugal is a small country with a small population. And the voyage from Portugal to Brazil was a deadly one with disease, dehydration, or shipwrecks leading to horrifically high mortality rates. And once you land, colonial Brazil was no paradise either. It's hot, humid, and a breeding ground for tropical disease, not to mention that the work on a sugar plantation is backbreaking and deadly. You work strenuously for hours in the aforementioned intense heat and humidity, and if you work in the processing mill, you're constantly surrounded by open furnaces and scalding water meant for boiling harvested sugar. Grinding rollers could crush your arm if you weren't careful, and, given the incredibly long hours and resulting intense fatigue, it was incredibly easy to make a mistake and lose an arm in the process. The Portuguese tried to solve this problem by enslaving the local indigenous population of Brazil. But given that the indigenous population had already been shrunk by a combination of war with the Portuguese and European diseases, the dangerous plantation work quickly drained the ravaged indigenous population. So, the Portuguese developed a solution, one which would have a bitter and cold stain on history. 
Unfortunately, since at least the development of agricultural society, slavery has been an omnipresent institution. We've seen it before on this podcast, too. Abraha and Fermentius were both famous former slaves in the Oxmite Empire who we met last season, for example. And in the early 16th century, slavery was still common throughout the world. In fact, the Western Mediterranean, that is, Portugal, Spain, and North Africa, were especially involved in the trade and exploitation of human beings. The reason for this is primarily rooted in religion. You see, while every society on earth at the time practiced slavery, Christianity and Islam did regulate certain aspects of the trade, namely, who you could enslave. In medieval Islamic jurisprudence, taking of fellow Muslims as slaves was strictly forbidden, as was the taking of dhimmi, Christians and Jews who lived under Islamic rule, as slaves. The medieval church, on the other hand, did allow fellow Christians to be taken as slaves, but Christian slaves could not be sold to non-Christians, nor could they be bought from non-Christians. However, both faiths did not believe that a slave converting to the faith should result in freedom. Now, it's worth noting that both Christians and Muslims skirted these restrictions regularly. However, they were still present and often complicated the sale of slaves. As a result, both Muslim and Christian slavers viewed slaves who were neither Christian nor Muslim as especially valuable. And yeah, it's weird talking about human beings with souls, feelings, and loved ones in such cold and economic terms. But the sad reality is that this is just how people viewed things back then. While there were a few enlightened people ahead of their time who questioned the barbaric practice of slavery, they were a small minority in a society that assumed slave economies were the default way to organize. To the Christians and Muslims of Iberia and North Africa, the closest source of people who were neither Christian nor Muslim was in West Africa. West Africa, as a part of humanity, had its own long, sad tradition of slavery. So North African merchants could easily tap into a pre-existing West African slave economy. Soon, the West African caravans began carrying north not only gold and ivory, but human cargo. However, in medieval Iberia, West and North Africa, slaves played a variety of roles in society. Usually, they were forced to be manual laborers, like miners, woodcutters, farmers, though some served as domestic workers, like maids or butlers, or even as concubines. However, on rare occasions, slaves in these regions were given tasks that might sound alien to our current perception of what slavery looks like. Slaves, including African slaves, were often forced to work as soldiers or even political bureaucrats. In 13th century Mali, one military slave, Sakura, famously elevated himself to become Mansa, or Emperor of Mali. Some Spanish slaves acted as soldiers during the conquests of Mexico and the Caribbean, while African slave soldiers played a pivotal role in dynastic struggles in Morocco during this period. Compared to the latter, more infamous slave trade across the Atlantic, this trans-Saharan slave trade was small at any given moment, but large in its total volume of humans trafficked over its centuries-long history. And while Spain had imported a small number of African slaves to toil on Caribbean plantations, this number was small and incidental compared to what would come. In 1526, a Portuguese merchant, seeking to alleviate the labor shortage in Brazil with enslaved African laborers, conducted the first dedicated slave shipment to the Americas. Later that year, a Spanish ship would do the same for Hispaniola, and as time went on, all European colonial powers would embed themselves in what would eventually become an unprecedentedly large trade route of human beings. The pre-existing slave trade in West Africa had mostly been a product of war. 
Most slaves were prisoners of war, or civilians from the defeated population. But as the transatlantic slave trade initiated, the trade in human beings boomed in coastal West Africa, and soon slavery would not only become a byproduct of war, but a motivator for its waging. Now, returning to the main focus of this episode, this sudden spike in demand for slaves would have an immense impact on the economy and society of Ghana. To be frank, the Denkira government was not only a willing but enthusiastic participant in the transatlantic slave trade, and with the demand for slaves now at an all-time global high, the Denkira Hene sought to profit. While expansion was something that was already on the mind of the rulers of the most powerful state in Ghana, the new desire to capture and sell enemy prisoners as slaves further incentivized the pursuit of war. So, in the 16th and 17th centuries, pursue war they did. These 200 years would be a period of near-constant intermittent warfare in southern Ghana. The first target for the Denkira were the Ashanti. Now, at this time period, the Ashanti peoples were not yet a unified kingdom or state, but were rather a group of disparate clans and tribes that shared only culture in common. Divided, they were unable to put up much resistance against Denkira aggression, and were swiftly conquered and turned into subjects of the Denkira Hene. With their immediate neighbors to the north subjugated, the Denkira's focus turned to assuming control of the trade routes between their kingdom and the Europeans. In a series of prolonged campaigns, the Denkira failed to assert their hegemony over their southwestern neighbor, the kingdom of Twifel. Threatened by the prospect of Denkira expansion, the Fonti city-states of the southern coast united into a confederation and managed to repel the Denkira invaders. However, despite these roadblocks, the kings of Denkira were far from dissuaded, and intermittent war continued well into the 17th century. As war ravaged the African kingdoms in Ghana, more Europeans began to set up shop on the coast. Primarily, these Europeans represented various trading companies, state-sponsored businesses that sought to profit from trade in various parts of the world. Usually, this type of business would consist of negotiating with or bribing a local leader into allowing the company to buy a small plot of land, usually one that the leader didn't see as particularly valuable, where the company would then build a fort from which they would base their mercantile operations. Or maybe they would just seize a fort built by another European trading company. In 1637, the Dutch East India Company captured Elmina Castle from the Portuguese, while the British established the Royal African Company in 1660. Even some European countries that don't come to mind when you think colonial power set up forts in the coast of Ghana at this time. The Swedish would briefly construct several forts on the coast of Ghana, which would later be seized by the Danish West India Company. We'll be back after a quick break. How are University of Notre Dame faculty and students working to be a force for good in the world? Listen to Notre Dame stories to find out. Through expert interviews and captivating stories, listeners gain an inside perspective on the global and domestic challenges the university is working to solve. Subscribe to Notre Dame Stories wherever you get your podcasts. Brandenburg, Prussia, a small kingdom in northern Germany, also set up a few forts on the Ghanaian coast. For the Denkira, and the kingdoms of Ghana more generally, these new arrivals were a blessing, as the Ghanaian kingdoms could play the Europeans off each other during trade negotiations to receive the best price. Oh, the British aren't offering the full price for a shipment of slaves and ivory? Well, that's okay. 
The Denkure merchants can just go sell them to the Swedes. I bet they'll buy them for full price. Nobody was better at taking advantage of this relationship than the Denkirahene. In 1650, the most, and really only well-known, Denkirahene was born. His name was Buon Ponsem, and his rule would prove to be both the apex and the beginning of the end of the Denkira Empire. When Duan Ponsem took the throne, Denkira was still in a state of perpetual stalemate with Fonte and Tuifo. And maybe that's a bit charitable. Tuifo, in fact, had seemingly turned their war with the Denkira around, and had begun to actually raid towns in Denkira's sphere of influence. However, under Duan Ponsem's direction, Denkira's military underwent a series of drastic reforms that would begin to tip their scales in their favor. Previously, Denkira's army had fought the traditional way of war among the Akan. They were equipped primarily with Akratene, a type of slashing blade, and bows as weapons. If you'd like to learn more about the various unique sword designs made among the Akan, you can listen to our newest premium episode on this surprisingly complex topic by supporting the show on patreon.com slash historyofafrica. Now, brief aside to talk about that a little more, I'm currently undergoing a pretty big change in my life at the moment, one which is making it increasingly difficult to schedule and produce shows at the current rate without financial support. Myself and my editor currently put almost a full-time workload into writing, producing, editing, and promoting the show, which goes up on the internet for free. So, in order to help us continue taking this ridiculous chunk out of our schedules, we rely on the help of you guys. Due to the changes in my life, however, I've been forced to make some changes to the Patreon. The premium episodes now cost $2.99 each month, instead of the old rate of $1.99, because it's more standard for the podcasting industry. And we really need your help. Of course, I don't really like begging on the internet, but we really appreciate those who have already been supporting us. So if you want to learn more about Akon Swords, or access any of our other educational premium episodes, vote in polls, or if you just want to help us out, please help us by supporting the show on patreon.com slash historyofafrica. While the Denkira and their enemies had imported the occasional firearm shipment from European merchants, these imported muskets were used sparingly on the rare occasion that they were used in battle at all. While firearms were not a new technology in West Africa, they had even been present in the Sahel since even prior to the construction of Almina, and the potential advantages that their use could provide was obvious, the Akan states generally avoided them due to their high cost to import and maintain. Given the lack of domestic firearm production in Ghana at the time, firearms were incredibly rare, and therefore highly expensive. Despite this high cost, however, Duampon Sam insisted that he wanted to vastly increase the use of firearms in Denkira's army. Even at a high cost, victory against the Fonte and Tuifo would ensure Denkira merchants direct access to the coast, and as an extension, direct access to European trade forts. And, while expensive, Duamponsem's importing of firearms appeared to pay off. In 1659, Duamponsem's army not only halted the Tuifo's advance, but even captured several of their most important cities. In the 1670s, the Denkira army advanced south, capturing a 130-mile wide stretch of coastal land from the Fonti, including the important trade site of Almina Castle. Not only had Duamponsem broken the stalemate, he had achieved his goal of capturing a route to the sea. Additionally, all of the importing of firearms meant that Europeans now viewed the Denkira as their primary trading partner in Ghana. Everything was going perfectly. Brandenburg, Britain, and the Netherlands even regularly sent envoys to the Denkira capital, since relocated away from Jukwa, north to a city called Aban Keseso, to discuss more mutually beneficial trade agreements. 
Meanwhile, the Den Kirahane sent a permanent ambassador to a British fort on the coast. However, while Duamponsem's plan had succeeded, the sustainability of his conquest was an entirely different matter. Sure, Den Kira was a wealthy empire, but it couldn't afford to keep importing high volumes of expensive firearms forever. And given that Twifo and Fonte were constantly skirmishing at the border to take back their lost territories, well, those firearm shipments were necessary if the trade corridor to the coast was going to stay open. But as Denkira's coffers shrank with each passing year, Duamponsem became increasingly desperate to acquire gold and slaves to trade. It started by levying increasingly high taxes on the kingdom's elite families, as well as an increasingly intense exploitation of gold deposits in the captured territories. When this proved insufficient to cover his ballooning military costs, Duamponsem turned to more overtly tyrannical measures. He sent teams of royal bureaucrats, followed by a small armed entourage, into towns and cities across the empire, essentially to shake down the local inhabitants for all they were worth. According to one eyewitness, King Duamponsem had a desire for gold to make his kingdom strong. He sent a messenger to tell all the people, saying, I am the great king, and I command you to fetch me all your gold. We did. But when Dorm Ponsem saw it, he said, it is not enough. So he sent to fetch more. We cannot bring it. And so the king became highly angry. He said, off with their heads. And so it was done. The headless trunks were thrown away into a stream. From then, Dorm Ponsem hardened his heart. So whenever gold was lacking, he cut off heads and cast their remains into the bush. And, of course, this desperate extraction of wealth fell especially hard on the Empire's Ashanti subjects, breeding intense resentment for the already unpopular Denkira domination. However, before this resentment could brew into anything more substantive, something happened that shocked the inhabitants of the Denkira Empire. After 44 years of rule, King Duamponsem passed away in 1694. He would leave behind a complicated legacy, as an incredibly effective, if not kind-hearted, ruler. His successor was a man named Ntim Gyakari, who would prove to equal Duamponsem's cruelty, but lacked his capable leadership. While the tyrannical extraction of wealth from the empire's inhabitants continued, the battles in the south began to turn against the Denkira. Denkira's wealth and manpower had already been stretched thin by decades of expensive warfare, and the levy was about to break. As Denkira's coffers ran dry and they lost the ability to import firearms, Tuifo and Fonte forces whittled away at their armies in the south. Understanding the desperate need for firearms, Intim Gyakari adopted even harsher methods of extracting what little wealth his people had left. History proved this decision would be a mistake, as the resentment provoked by these ever-intensifying kleptocratic tendencies would prove not only to be the end of Gyakari, but the end of his empire. Join us next episode, as we learn about what exactly was going on among the Ashanti during this time, and how it will blossom into a flame of rebellion that will consume the Denkira Empire. Thank you for listening to the History of Africa podcast. If you like the show and the free education we provide, then I'd encourage you to support the show. This can be done by a monetary donation to our Patreon, which can be found on our website, historyofafricapodcast.blogspot.com. By giving the show a review on iTunes, or by sharing the podcast to anyone who you think might be interested. This episode, like all others, is brought to you by our patrons. Raul Kanakia, Ayo Fagbamie, Aaron L., and Kevin Johnson, among others. Thank you for helping to make the show happen.